Last week, we looked at the topic, <clears throat> how can we find meaning in life when life is against us? And now as we move on, we want to consider the topic, how can we find meaning in life when men are against us? And there's a definite shift from events that take place in our lives <clears throat> to the men and women who impact our lives. So let's have prayer again, and we will see what Solomon has to say today. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your goodness to us. Thank you for being the reliable person that you are. You told the nation of Israel, I am God, I change not. And Father, we're so glad for that. There is so much about us as people that is changeable, uh, un <clears throat> unreliable, not because we want to be unreliable, but we are just not who you are, the only perfect person next to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we look at this section of the book of Ecclesiastes, that you would help us to know that you stand with us when it seems like men are against us. And your stand with us will always trump the stand that others have. So help us as we look at this together, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. In chapter three, beginning with verse 16, notice, and moreover I saw under the sun, now remember, you're probably getting tired of me saying this. Whenever you see that, he's looking at life, observing life from the vision of men who have set God aside. He started the chapter like that in chapter 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the sun. That's why life looked like it was out of control, but when it really wasn't. Another observation being made by people who think and see things as if there is no God. And moreover, verse 16, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there. The place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. He's talking about the courts of law. And he uses the phrase, the place of judgment, that's referring to the courts. The place of righteousness, that's also referring to the courts. Uh, the function of a court is really pretty simple. Uh, when there's a dispute or there's problems that cannot be resolved among men, uh, a judge or a panel of jury is to hear the evidence, the presentations, and to render a verdict, a conclusion. The innocent are to be declared innocent. The guilty are to be declared guilty. And again, it's very simple. I have in the PowerPoint, why does Lady Justice wear a blindfold? And you see this on uh, the sculptures that have Lady Justice holding scales. And it is a reminder that in the courts of law, uh, men of influence, that's not to make any difference. Uh, men of means, is not going to make a difference, not supposed to make a difference. 
Circumstances do not make a difference. People are to judge uh, situations and render verdicts on the basis of the evidence, declaring innocent those who are innocent, declaring guilty those who are guilty. And that's simple. We can thank God that our court system was based on the Bible and the teachings that God really made very clear about this in this area. But as he looks at this, this observation in the courts of law, he sees that's not what's happening. The innocent are being declared guilty and the guilty are being said they're innocent. And you can't see it in, the, in your English Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, there is moral outrage here. There's something very wrong here. And that's why it says in the New International Version, in the place of judgment, wickedness is there. In the place of righteousness, wickedness is there. And this emphasis upon the dominance of wickedness in the courts of law. That's the topic, and that's what he sees that grieves him. And people who rule in courts, men and women, they're very powerful, they're very influential. And this passage reminds us that sometimes they're very dishonest and they fail to do what the courts have been established to do. It's, it's, it's just, it's just, too bad, whether it's in Solomon's day or our own, when in the courts of law, the good, those who are good or in the right, are dealt with unjustly. And those who are wrong, those who are guilty, are set free. There's a uh, kind of a saying uh, among lawyers, and we've known some in some of our churches, uh, and the saying is this, as you're going to court, do you have a strong case? And the reply is often, oh, it doesn't matter if a person's innocent or guilty. The real issue, who has the best lawyer? Who can present things the right way? Who can twist things the right way? And unfortunately, it shouldn't be left up to who can present the right case or who can twist things around. Uh, but it's, it's a problem that Solomon sees. And, and it exists today, we know that, and, it, and it's just sad. How are you gonna feel if in life you have been wronged? Maybe someone was doing work at your home and they didn't complete the work or they did work that was, was not appropriate, it was not good, it's not working. You've got the paperwork to show that uh, you, uh, you hired this person in good faith, you gave them payment in good faith, this is the contract, this is what they were due, but they didn't do it. Or, suppose like me, I have uh, two RAV4s, the one I drive, I've had a little old lady drive in the back of me once, and a teenager using a cell phone drove right in the back of me and were not even seeing me twice. And for insurance purposes, the, the policeman told me, he said, don't worry about it. He said, Mr. Gilbert, anytime anybody runs into the back of a vehicle, they are automatically at fault. And I said, well, I'm not aware of that. <laughs> but, but so when we, when we know we've been wronged and we, we go to court, we have to try to settle some of these things and we have the proof in front of us 
we have the paperwork fully expecting that the court says, okay, honor your word, fulfill this contract, take care of things. Instead, the court says, Kate dismissed. And there's no recourse that you have. You didn't file the paperwork in time. Or you put the wrong name on the document. Or this or that, and you're thinking, what's, what's going on here? I have the proof that this person was wrong, and yet everything's thrown out and you're left holding the bag. Those are awful things to go through, and, and it does happen. Injustice is hard to get through. And so the question that I'm asking you to think about as we go through here is, okay, how are you gonna get through that when men deal with you unjustly on that level? How are we gonna get through that? Well, Solomon's also thinking about that, and that's why he brings us to the next verse. I want you to see that. In verse 17, I said in my heart, and notice in verse 18, it begins the same way. I said in my heart, something was settled within him deeply when he saw this. Something was settled that helped him to be able to deal with the injustice. He wants us to settle our hearts too. Do this in our heart. Notice what he says. The first thing, it says, in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. God will judge both the wicked. It simply means that you need to remember, I need to remember if this happens to us, that when human judges fail, God will not. And he's going to make this very personal. He's bringing God into the picture as someone who is real, who is very active, who is handling things, even the wrongs in this world. He's not distant or indifferent. He knows when things are wrong. And so he brings God into this, this discussion because he knows there are times that injustices take place and good people have to pay the price. And... That's, that's what we see here. So I want you to think about that. When human judgment fails, God does not. When the judge says case closed, God says not yet. <laughs> it's not. It's not yet done for him. And there, it's, it's very, very easy to see what he's saying here in this particular passage. Uh, that God is very work. God is, is working. Uh, one man said God is very judicious when the courts fail and that the terms that are used here are legal terms. He is working judiciously. It means that not only uh, is he assessing the difference between right and wrong, he will process its execution, the judgment that he brings. The case is not closed. There is in uh, one of the minor prophets a statement that's always just kind of amazed me. I can remember the first time I read it about what, what God is going to do, what the Savior is going to do when he returns to this world, begins to deal with sin in this world. In one prophecy, he says that the Savior will make right every dishonest business dealing. Now think about that. 
One of the things that God's going to do is he's going to settle accounts. He's going to make right shady business dealings, dishonest business dealings, corrupt business dealings, pretense uh, hiding behind words and things, knowing they're going to do one thing when they're saying another. God's going to settle all that out. The Savior will take care of that. My first thought was when I read that, well, that's going to take a long time. <laughs> Just think how much dishonest business working there has been in this world. But God goes on record that living in a world that there is injustice, when men get things flip-flopped and they don't do what they're supposed to do, God, who is watching everything, will settle accounts. And we need to take a great deal of comfort to that. There are two passages that I'd like to share with you. I'm going to, crop, going to try to move ahead. Maybe we'll do it in our discussion later. But if the courts ever misdeal with you, if they are dishonest with you or they fail you, God will handle your case personally. Where this gets difficult is when there, there is domestic dispute, where there is litigation between families and it gets awful sticky, uh, where there's divorce and maybe a person, a mom or a dad, is trying, are trying to use the kids as kind of leverage to hurt the other. God sees all of that and it gets sticky, but God will handle your case for you personally if the courts fail, and it will be resolved, whether now or in eternity, it will be resolved, and you need to know that. It's, it's just sad that, that there has to be that. Let me go on to verse 18. There's something else that God's doing in this too. He's not only taking care of you, he's working in the hearts of the people who have failed you or failed others. I, verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God will make clear to them, manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are animals. When God created uh, this world, he created the animals first, and then he created man, a much higher creation, his supreme creation. Big difference between man and animals. When men fail in the courts, when they are not honest with the legal issues, and there's injustice in our lives, God has a way of setting a mirror in front of those people who have failed, man or woman, and to show them clearly who and what they have become. They're not getting away with anything. They can't push it away because God is going to make it absolutely clear to them what they have done to themselves and how wrong their actions are. So the judge or the person may long be gone. God is still working with that person. And it's interesting that in this one commentary that deals with Hebrew phrases, he says the, trans, the verse may be translated this way. God is making it clear to them so that they may see that they are, yes, that they by themselves are now animals. And then this man goes on to explain why the Hebrew makes that clear. So God is dealing with them, and they're not getting away with anything. So don't worry about that. Unfortunately, uh, it's, it's just very difficult. Uh, 
But when life is against us because men have been dishonest in the courts or with legal issues, don't worry, God is gonna stand with you and he will be actively involved in settling accounts. Now, that's what we see when we look to the scriptures. We know God is good. We know who he is and helps us. And we're gonna talk about this, discuss it a little bit later on. And now jump down to chapter four because he continues with the same topic. It's a little different, but it's the same topic. Chapter four, another section where men are against us. God's caring for us includes not only the courts of law, but it deals with those things that are wrong in life when men are against us or make things difficult for us. Notice the verses, they speak for themselves. I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Again, that's the way he's looking at life. Behold the tears of such as were oppressed and that they had no comforter on the side of their oppressors. There was power, but they had no comforter. Life is pretty hard here, isn't it? Something is very wrong here. You can see it from the terminology. You have the word oppression used three different times. You have the word tears for those who are being oppressed. This is not good. People taking advantage of others. And these people who are having such a difficult time are alone, there's no one to comfort them. And Solomon sees this and he's grieved because it shouldn't be like this at all. And he repeats himself by trying to remind people that they need to remember that there's a God who is over them, who is caring for them, who sees all of this. God feels the same way. This is just not right. And as we think about uh, what will God do, uh, the wrongs will not be fixed in some of these verses, phrases, uh, what will God do? What are we going to do? How are we going to think? Uh, uh, he wants us to know that we can rely upon him. We talked about that last week. We wanna talk about it a little bit more this week because it doesn't automatically happen that our hearts are there. Uh, we are now into about a fourth of the book. And there is this fatalistic, this very depressing view of life. It's all wrong in every way, shape or form, all these observations. And yet he's beginning to shout and we can hear Solomon shout, but wait, there is God. He makes the difference. He's in control. And that's the message that he's going to continue to shout throughout the rest of the book. And it'll be loud and clear by the time we get to the end of the book. But as we continue here, notice that there is another example of how men make life difficult or why life becomes difficult because of men. Notice verse four, chapter four, verse four. Again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. The word travail, all of his hard work, every right work. I have translations up here and I want you to see what, what's being said here. I have also learned why people work so hard to succeed. It is because they envy 
the things their neighbors have. Now look again at verse 4 in your translation to see if you can see that. I considered all the travail, that's the hard work, even right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. It's a little changed in my translation, but three translations that I wanted you to see the emphasis is he says that people are driven to work and succeed, a lot of it because of envy. I've also learned why people work so hard to succeed is because they envy the things their neighbors have. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. I saw that toil, all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. So what he sees is there's nothing wrong with the hard work and the accomplishments and the achievement, but the heart, why are people pushing so hard? Why are they driven this way to work? This envy thing. I have in the picture two kids side by side. One has an ice cream cone, the other one does not. Look at the little boy that does not. What's on his face? <laughs> He's not feeling too good, is he? Do you remember what, of the Ten Commandments, do you remember what the last commandment is? We know don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. We know all the things, don't do. In the very end, the last commandment, don't covet. You remember that? Don't covet. And again, it's, it's, it's not the ambition in a sense. It's not the hard work that's being criticized here or evaluated. It's what drives it. People just do crazy things because they envy one another. And I have a, a mother, she's 90. Uh, she's in a retirement home out uh, right by the Indiana state line. And when she sold her house, there was a neighbor before very, very well to do, but he loved his flowers and he kept his flowers nice. My mom found out that he would hook his hose up to her water spout on the outside and turn it on, use her water to water his flowers to make sure they were nice. She had no idea he was doing that. So she got a water bill one day and saw what's going on here and began to watch, make sure things were turned off and saw this. And so she went out when her, when her neighbor was doing this, catching him in the act, and waiting for some explanation. Here's a man who wanted his flowers to look nice, but he didn't want to use his water to, 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 to do that, so he thought he could sneak a little bit, and she didn't have any flowers. His house was much better than hers. <laughs> and the whole thing was just ridiculous. In his eyes, he would do everything outside to make sure that his house always looked better, mom's always looked fine. This, I have to be better than other people. I, I need to have more to be better. This whole area of image, it's just totally ridiculous. And it just, that's what he's seeing here. This, the beneath the surface, this envy, this, I want to be seen this way, uh, this, I want the image. Uh, I want to be better than none of those things. Envy, uh, competitiveness, uh, the area of 
of uh, drive and comparison, none of those things can create friendship, closeness, companionship, whether it's in the home or in the neighborhood or at work. When people are soured, I have to have this. I have to be better than. I have to have more than. Uh, Solomon says it's just awful. And what they end up doing at different times is taking advantage of people, misusing people, misrepresenting people, anything they can do to get ahead of the game. And it's just a sad, sad thing. Uh, he's saying that you can't have meaning in life, value or purpose in life, if that's what you're going to drive at. You just can't. And what he does now, I think, is kind of neat because he gives us options. Okay, he's still thinking about how we're going to live our lives. And he gives us options. Okay, how are you going to make sure that you're the right kind of person? How are you going to make sure that you live the right way when so many men are not what they, what they should be? And he tells us, first of all, in verse 5, don't be like the lazy men. Chapter 4, verse 5, the fool folds his hands together, eats his own flesh. Uh, here's a man who is a dropout. You can see in the picture, you can see the one that's the dropout. He's the guy who's just not going to do any work. It's comfortable, it's convenient, it feels better not to do anything, and he goes through life, he does absolutely nothing. He's a dropout. He's a bum. You can't do that. That's not right. And the book of Proverbs talks about what happens to those that do that. A man has no ambition. He's lazy. So that's not the way that we are to live. Verse 6, he talks about another man. Better is a handful with quietness, peace, than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. It's better if you enjoy your life. And he's going back to that theme of you need to recognize God's gifts, the good things that God has given to you. Enjoy what you have. Don't be thinking about what you don't have. Don't be working 24 seven to get more and more and more. Stop, slow down, enjoy your family. Spend time with your kids. Do something special for your wife to let her know you love her or your husband. Just settle down quietly. Just enjoy what you have. And he's building on some of those other thoughts that he shared earlier. It's better to live quietly, to enjoy what you have. Don't get caught up in having to be better than everyone else. Uh, you just don't want to go there. Notice he talks about a man in verse 8. Notice how he describes this man. He says, uh, verse 7, another uh, observation, I returned, I saw Vanny under the sun. Again, you know what that means. There is one, one man, he's alone, There's, there is not a second. Yet he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all of his work. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither does he say, for whom do I do this? Uh, uh, why am I bereaving my soul of good? And what you have here is a man who is very much alone. And, and notice how his life is described. 
He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a spouse. He doesn't have children. He doesn't even have a brother in his life. He is totally alone. Did you notice how many times that word alone is used there? Totally alone. <clears throat> he has been successful. He a hard worker. He has gotten ahead. He is maybe at the top of his field. It says that he has his riches. And he's there. He's, he's, he's not satisfied. We notice there he is. His eye is neither satisfied with his riches. He has it, but he's not satisfied. And he doesn't stop long enough even to think, why am I doing this? What am I doing with my life? There's no inner struggle. He doesn't even realize that he needs to stop and think. He's alone. It's okay with him. He's working hard. That seems to be enough for him. He is rich and pats himself in the back. And he doesn't ever stop and think, what am I doing? What am I thinking? And as you look at this man, how would you like to have worked for him? How would you like to have a boss like him? He's totally independent, totally self-focused, totally focused, absorbed with his work. And he doesn't even have any problems seeing the way he lives. He's not going to see anything about you of real life. He's just going to want you to grind out and to do more and more. He's not going to care for you at all. Like Mr. Scrooge Ebenezer, huh? And uh, that Christmas Carol. Why in the world would you do that? And again, Solomon is trying to picture people as a great observation. People are like that so that others will what am I doing with my life? What am I thinking? Why am I doing that? And this passage, there, it doesn't even show that there is an inner struggle with this man. Am I going through life not having any struggle about things that are wrong? And he's challenging them. And then verses 9 through 12, uh, he brings this section to a close by talking about the role of friends in our life. In verses nine and following, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Two people can get more work done than just one. So it's good to have a friend just for the sake of benefit that can help together work. Also protection, verse 10, if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falls for he does not have another to help him up. There's a benefit to having friends in our lives because they can help us when things are difficult. Verse, the next verse, uh, verse 11 again, if two lie together, they will have heat. How can one be warm alone when the nation of Israel, when people would go from one place to another, often they would have to sleep at night. And they, it was always nice to have somebody to keep them warm. And again, their own protection in verse 12. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And what he's saying here is that there is a role of friends that we need to, to consider in our lives. He's going back to the gifts of God, the things that God has done for us. And it's not just in our home, but how about friends that we have in our home, friends that have meant a lot to us. 
He is building, Solomon is building on the truths that he has stated earlier. God has given us many gifts. We need to think about what we're doing in our lives. And if you put all these things together, it's very obvious that he's telling us that one of the problems that men and women have in life is, is that they're not still in verse 6. They, they won't stop. They keep pushing through life. They want to get ahead. They don't think about what they're doing. They don't evaluate what they're doing. Uh, that's, that's just awful. And he closes the chapter <clears throat> by talking about a foolish king. Uh, verse 13, it, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will not listen anymore, just set and stuck in his ways. And what happens in the, as the chapter closes, you have one man who's in prison, he becomes popular and the people make him king. But as time goes along, people say, well, this guy's pretty good over here. So they make another man king. People are fickle. People are totally fickle. And if we are to have uh, meaning in life, and if we are to have value in life and a sense of settledness, we can't, we can't be like the wrong people but we can't put too much trust in people either. We can't settle our lives there. We need to settle upon God. God is the one who will give us meaning and purpose and value and a sense of contentment. God who is our friend, who will care for us when the world is against us, when the courts are against us, when men and justice are against us. What God wants us to do is to stop long enough to think about what we're doing with our life, to recognize the gifts that he's given to us, to be thankful for them, to appreciate our homes, our spouse, our children, the lives that God has given us, even the work that God has given us, and our friends. He wants us to have a good life, and we can. We're going to stop right there. The topic has been when men are against us, when men make life difficult. Okay, we're going to stop there and then we'll discuss this just like we did last week when we thought about the topic when life is against us.